Kabbalah and the Psychology of the Soul, taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. On one hand, the Torah says we exist. In the beginning, Bereshis, the very opening line of the Torah, Bereshis, Baralakim. How do we know the world exists? Maybe the world is just one big illusion. Maybe it's like a movie set and we're just seeing characters and it appears real. Maybe it's just a cartoon. Maybe it's just a, an illusion. How do we know that we truly exist? Because the Torah says, Bereshis, Baralakim. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. That's the only way we know that this is real. So the Torah itself is telling us that we're for real. How do you reconcile that? On one hand, we exist. Our existence is real. The Torah itself says that we're real. And yet on the other hand, God is alone, as if, as if we don't exist. Nothing changed. God was alone and He remains alone. How could you reconcile the two? It seems like a paradox. What's the whole point of serving God if I don't exist? What am I accomplishing? If there's no other reality but God... What am I doing? What am I accomplishing? What's the point? What's the purpose? Anyway, God is every, God. There is nothing but God. You would think that the more you understand how there's not the reality but God, then the gap, the distance in us and God has just become unbridgeable. It's like a Grand Canyon, an infinite gap. There's no connection between us and God. So if when you talk about, as we learned last week, earlier, that God fills all the world, like the soul fills the body. And then you have the all-encompassing energy that God creates and sustains the world with His all-encompassing energy that totally eludes our consciousness, eludes our grasp, and is completely beyond our, our, our frame of reference, our, our comprehension. That's totally removed and remote from us. We can't even perceive it. But when you talk about the essence of God, and in relation to the essence of God, we don't even exist. Our existence doesn't mean anything. It has no value. It has, it's like completely meaningless. It doesn't add anything. And all there is is God. You would think then the distance between us and God is, is beyond. Unbridgeable. And yet, it's just the opposite. It's the essence of God that's the closest to us. Because when you understand the essence of God, there is no other reality but God. Then you realize that God is right here with me, right in front of me, right in front of my eyes, right under my nose, is right here with me, here and now, present, actual. It, it's what others would call radical imminence. That means the, it, the immediacy of God, the reality of God. God is not some abstraction, some otherworldly, remote, removed, on the contrary. This hits home, it, then it hits home how immediate, how actual, how palpable the reality of God is. God is right in front of me. The very essence of God. Then there are no, there are no, there, there is no canyon. There is no chasm between us and God because God is here. There's no, there's no other reality but God. That means God is within me. God is right here. In front of me. Immediate. It's real. As real as it gets. So this hits home in the most powerful way. The reality of God hits home in the most powerful way. It becomes actual and real to us. Not some abstraction. It's on the country. And that alone is also it's counterintuitive. You would think that the more you understand that we're so distant from God and we're so nothing and we're so insignificant, on the country, the more you understand that, the more you realize how 
Hashem is right here and now. Because there is no hiding. The whole idea that God is hiding could only affect God's projection, God's infinite light. But when it comes to the essence of God, there is no hiding. There's no tzimtzum. And that's why even children, even ignorant people, simple people, unsophisticated, know God with every fiber of their being and every bone in their body. And that's why everyone says, Baruch Hashem. The simple Jew will say, Baruch Hashem, thank God. Not because he studied philosophy. He studied Maimonides and he studied philosophy. Not because he studied the Ari and he studied mysticism. He doesn't know about philosophy, he doesn't know about mysticism. A simple, unlettered, unsophisticated person, uneducated person. And yet he knows with his kishkis, with every fiber, every, every bone's body, he knows the reality of God so much so that it's so obvious to him, it's so self-evident. My health, thank God. My business, thank God. How are things at home? Thank God. Everything in my life is thank God. Could you explain it? I can't explain it, but, but I know that God is everything. There's nothing but God. There's no other reality but God. There's nothing else. All there is is God. If there's anything, all there is is God. And the truth is, it's not just the Jewish people. The truth is the reality of God is something, the essence of God. There's no hiding, there's no concealing, there's no screening. The essence of God is so obvious and self-evident and so palpable that not only Jews but even non-Jews, every human being knows God with every fiber of their being and every bone in their body. And the proof is, if you think about it, the philosophers prided themselves that they call themselves the enlightened ones. Why are they the enlightened ones? What makes a person enlightened? Because when a person overcomes the fear of death, when the philosopher, through his brilliance and through his intellect, came to the realization, comes to the realization that death is part of life. Without death, there's no life. Just like without up, there's no down. Without right, there's no left. You can't have one without the other. Without pain, there's no joy. Without, if there's no shadow, there's no light. So one brings the other. They're both connected. So they have risen above the fear of death that motivates the masses. And they're above it. They realize that death is part of life. There's nothing to be afraid of. And they can accept death with equanimity. This is the definition of an enlightened person. Comes along the Torah and says, a person who doesn't mourn on a loved one that dies, it's not because he's enlightened. He's endarkened. This is a monster, a cruel, inhumane person. Because the masses that these who suffer from superiority complexes make fun of. The masses are more in touch and more in tune with reality than these great philosophers. Why is it that six billion people instinctively mourn death? It's the greatest tragedy. It should be the most logical thing in the world. Everyone we know dies. We don't know a single person who hasn't died. The exceptions of Elijah the prophet, 
with a few exceptions, we don't know anyone who hasn't died. So logically, death should be like, you go to sleep, you live the life, you say goodbye, good night, and go to sleep. Why is death such a, a tragedy? Logically, you can't have right without left. You can't have up without down. So you can't have death without, you can't have life without death. And why do we fight against suffering? You can't have joy without suffering. And why do we fight against evil? You can't have evil without, good without evil. The two are seemingly inseparable. Isn't that the position of the enlightened philosopher and the enlightened mystic who realizes that there is no right and wrong and all the dualities are really just part of the same? Inseparable. And yet, instinctively, six billion people touch across all cultures, all educational systems, in their gut, just know that there's something wrong with that. And hate evil. And hate lies and fight evil and fight pain and the reason is because God is not an abstraction God is a reality God is period there is nothing else when we say God is one not only there's one God and not two gods or God is unified within himself what we're saying is there is no other reality God is one there's only one existence God's, God is an absolute being. And therefore, since there's nothing but God, God's being is absolute. Therefore, He doesn't need anything else to define Him. We, who are not absolute beings, we need something, something to contrast us. We need something to define us. We need the opposite to define us. So right needs left to define it. Good needs evil to define it. Wisdom needs foolishness to define it. Light needs shadow. Joy needs pain. Life needs death. But that's only from our relative existence, our relative point of view. But from God's absolute point of view, and ultimately the only point of view, just like God's being is absolute, so goodness that comes from God is also absolute. There can be absolute good without any evil. There can be absolute life without death. There could be absolute light without any shadows. There could be absolute joy. As the Prophet says, Vesim Mashiach will be an eternal joy. There won't be any, no longer any shadow. There won't be no longer any evil. That's the revolution of the Jewish belief of Mashiach. The Jewish belief of Mashiach is so counterintuitive. It's so revolutionary. It's so beyond our whole frame of reference. And yet this is the belief. This is the core, the essential principle of Judaism that a Jew believes. And we know, now Kishkes, we know that there's a world which is absolutely good, where there's absolutely life. There won't be any death anymore. Hashem will swallow up death forever. The tragedy of death will come to an end. The tragedy of evil, of lies will come to an end. Darkness will come to an end. Shadows will come to an end. Pain will come to an end. There will be absolute joy, absolute goodness, and absolute life. And it's not just Jews who know this, but it's universal. Six billion people know this truth, even though you can't explain it, it's inexplicable. It makes no sense. The philosophers are completely right, logically and philosophically and mystically, they seem to be 100% correct. But we know a deeper truth that they don't know that eludes all these and darkened 
darkened ones. The truth is that the masses are truly the enlightened. They know, in their kishkas, they know the reality of God. And when you know the reality of God, you just know that something is wrong. When you see death, it, it, it's, it's gut-wrenching. It's unnatural. Everyone we know dies, but it, 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 you can never make peace with it. If something is wrong with this picture. It makes no sense. Death makes no sense. When you're confronted with evil, your blood boils. It makes no sense. When you're confronted with lies and deception and evil, you can't accept pain. You have to fight pain and stuff. Because when it comes to the essence, the reality of God, there is no screening, there is no hiding, there is no... God's essence is completely manifest before our very eyes. There's no hiding, there's no blockage, it's not even possible to hide or to block. The whole symptom only affects God's projection, His infinite light, but not His essence. So when you think, when you, it dawns upon you, and it, you understand it with a very penetrating understanding, and then you deepen, you reflect on it very deeply, until something, it evokes a response inside, something stirs inside of you, you realize the reality of God is right in front of you. It's here and now, immediate, actual, real, as real. The only, the only thing that's real, as real as anything. The Kutzke Rebbe once asked his Hasidim, he says, where is, where is God? Where is Hashem? So they said, Hashem is everywhere. So he said, no. Hashem is wherever you let Him in. When you let Hashem into your heart, when you let him into your mind, when you let him into your consciousness, when you're aware of him, when you're aware of his presence, when you feel him, that's where Hashem is. So the whole purpose of creation, the whole purpose of all the heavens and the angelic beings, and the whole purpose of the divine spherot, supernal spherot, emanation, the world of emanation, and the whole purpose of everything that exists, in the higher realms, in the lower levels, higher levels of consciousness, sublime, pure, spiritual, divine, everything, the purpose of everything that exists is, as we'll explain later, is that God wanted to feel at home in this, in this world. God wanted a dwelling place in this world. And it's only when we let Him into our lives and we willingly choose to allow Hashem to enter into our lives, it's only then that God's essence becomes manifest. So again, this is completely counterintuitive. This is completely revolutionary. This is what distinguishes Judaism from all other religions, which place the emphasis on the higher, the sublime, love and meditation, and philosophy and the spiritual. In Judaism emphasizes the material, the physical, the action, the deed. It's this world that is the holiest of all the worlds. What the heavens and the heavens of heavens cannot contain God. And where is God found? Where is God's abode? Where did God give us the Torah? Who did God marry? Where did He create the temple? Where does He feel at home? He doesn't feel at home in the heavens and the heavens of heaven. Where does He feel at home? In this world, in this physical existence, in the lowest of all the worlds. This world is the most sacred. This world is the holiest. This world is the Garden of Eden. And the ultimate reward will be the resurrection. When the souls were in heaven for thousands of years, growing in leaps and bounds on a daily basis, they can't wait to come back into the body in this world. This world is the holiest of all the worlds. Completely counterintuitive. How can this world be the holiest of all the worlds? With the greatest potential. 
which is also why this world is the most corrupt and the most decadent. <laughs> because the greater the potential for good, the greater the potential for the opposite. This is the most dynamic of all worlds. Everything that we do in this world affects all of the worlds, including the divine realms, everything. The fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe of Shon Dober, the Rebbe Rashav, once asked, he said, why? Why does God get so excited? It says in the Torah, out of the 613 mitzvot, there are 51 mitzvot that deal with idolatry, that one should not worship idols. More than any other theme, 51 mitzvot that deal with one single thing. Thou shalt not worship idols. Second of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not worship idols. God gets very jealous. The answer is, why should God care? Why should God get so excited if one worships idols? Just imagine. Albert Einstein is sitting on a park bench here in Central Park. And he's sitting next to two six-year-old kids. And he overhears a conversation. One kid is telling the other, you know, I heard in my home that Albert Einstein is the greatest genius alive today. Perhaps of many generations. And his friend, the other six-year-old, responds to his friend. He says, you know, I read his theories. Frankly, I'm not too impressed. <laughs> I don't know what the whole, the whole commotion is all about. I'm not too impressed. <laughs> What do you think would be Einstein's response? You think it really bothers him what this little six-year-old Schmendrick thinks about it? <laughs> He's the greatest genius, or not the genius. This six-year-old is a maven of geniuses. He'll smile to himself. It's like a joke. It's amusing. Well, multiply that infinite times. The distance in Einstein, the six-year-old kid, is nothing in comparison. It's an infinite difference in us and God. The greatest genius in God. So imagine God's response if a human being decides if some atheistic professor scratches his head and decides that there is no God. Very, very amusing. I mean, really. That really is going to change things because he thinks that God doesn't exist, does exist, as if that means anything. It matters, it changes. I mean, it, it's, the whole thing is, is it's amusing at best. Think of Einstein and the child. It's, it's completely amusing. <laughs> and yet, why, so why does God get so excited? God becomes jealous. The Jew worships idols. You deny my existence. God gets so excited. What's the explanation? Because that's the idea when you say God is one. If God is an absolute being, and there's no other reality but God, then God's reality can't be 99.9%. If something is 99.9% .9 real, it's 100% not real. So the moment you say that God is limited to certain enclaves of religiosity, Jerusalem, Crown Heights, Muncie, Borough Park, Williamsburg, if God is relegated to the heaven and the heaven of heavens and to holy sublime places, but outside of those enclaves, God doesn't exist. Or if there's one human being who in his heart and mind, God doesn't exist, that's a direct contradiction to the essence of God. Because if God is real, then God has to be 100% real. That means 
that 14 million Jews, every last Jew has to feel connected. Six billion people, every last human being has to be a righteous Gentile, has to feel connected to the divine, has to allow God to enter into the hearts and the mind. And if not, God's reality is not real. And that's why the Torah says, in Exodus, the end of the Parsha, the Torah portion of B'Shalom, that God does battle with Amalek because until Mashiach comes, God's name is incomplete. We're not allowed to pronounce God's name. And His throne is incomplete. And that's why Mashiach is such an essential part of Judaism. Why is that so essential? Why can't I just serve God and worship God? And if there are people who don't believe in God, why does that take away from my connection and my awareness and my service of God? Because the answer is, it's only when every human being will accept God, willingly accept God, as their sovereign, and allow God to enter into their consciousness, into their hearts and their minds. When every Jew will be proud of their Jewishness and feel connected. And when every human being will feel that he's created in the image of God, and he's a descendant of Noah, and live up to that role model, and become a Ben Noah, a Noahide, righteous Gentile, following the Torah, Noahide laws, the seven Noahide laws. It's only at that moment that God will become, that God's essence, that God is real. Because if God is real, then His reality has to be able to permeate even a world like ours. A world where God doesn't impose Himself on us. In heaven, they have no choice. God is revealed. God is manifest. God projects Himself. So of course they're nullified to God. It's almost like God imposes Himself on, on the angels. But God created the world, our world, where He's hidden and He's concealed. And it's a very earthy world. And yet, even in this world, God is comforted. That we, on our own, we will come to the realization and willingly and deliberately accept upon ourselves. Not because we have no choice. We have a choice. He created the world with his freedom of choice. And we, on our own, will have the wisdom and come to the realization and the awareness of the truth, of the emiss, that there's no other reality but God. And we'll willingly, deliberately and willingly choose to enter into this relationship and to connect with God. And there will be a moment, the Torah promises, and it's not just a detail. Maimonides says this is the, one of the 13 principles and the Chafetz Chaim says this is the principle of all principles. Because a Jew who doesn't believe, who doesn't anticipate, who doesn't yearn for this moment, misses the entire point of the entire Torah. Because if you believe in the truth of God and you believe in the reality of God, then you must believe that there will be a moment, there will be a time when every last Jew alive in this world and every last human being that's alive, except Amalek, which is incorrigible and, and will be wiped out because Amalek is, is irredeemable. Amalek is like toxic waste. The absolute evils in this world, the Hitlers of the world, they are irredeemable. The hardcore anti-Semites of the world, they're irredeemable. That's Amalek. But the 70 nations of the world, 6 billion people, every last one of them, Every race, every color, every nationality, every last one of them, from one end of the world to the other, 
will come to recognize and accept the sovereignty of God. Willingly and deliberately. That's the world of Mashiach. And it's only then that God's name will be whole, will be allowed to pronounce God's name. God's will be revealed. So therefore, we affect God. Because if we don't open our hearts and we don't open our minds and we don't allow God into our consciousness, then in a certain sense, God is not real. Because what you're saying then is that God is real in 99.9% .9 of the universe. But in my mind, in my heart, God is not a reality. That's a direct contradiction to the truth and the essence of God. So it's only in our world that God's essence is revealed. A world where God is hidden and there's freedom of choice. And even in this world, God's reality could permeate our reality. We can come to the realization, we can open our hearts and open our minds and open our awareness and make that connection. We affirm the reality of God. More so than the heavens and the heavens of heavens, the angels with all their sublime, sublime spiritual elevation, inspiration, have nothing on a human being have nothing on us. Because it's only in this setting, in this world, that we come and we touch the essence of God. It's only in this world that we reveal and make manifest the essence of God. God says, I feel at home in this world. That's why God married us. He gave us the Torah. He didn't give the Torah to angels. He gave the heavens came down to earth. God told us to build a temple. He only feels at home in this world. The heaven, as King Solomon cried out in, in astonishment when he built the first temple in Jerusalem, he says, the heavens and the heaven of heavens are not contained. God doesn't feel at home in heavens and the heavens of heavens. Where is God's essence felt? Where does He feel at home? Where is His essence manifest? Ironically and paradoxically in this physical world. Our world, a world of geography, of time and space, material beings, bodies, souls and bodies, this is where God feels at when you open your heart and you open your mind and you become aware of the reality of God and it permeates your whole being until your heart sings with joy and when you realize that God is palpable and God is actual and God is immediate and God is real right in here and now right in front of me and you realize that you have fulfilled the ultimate purpose of creation you have revealed the essence of God you have touched you have connected with the very essence of God. In the here and now. In this physical plane of existence. In this physical world. That's why the soul journeyed into the body. That's why the soul left the heavens. It's heavenly perch. It's heavenly peak. And it came down into the abyss. And it was all worthwhile. It was all worthwhile. That traumatic experience of the soul coming down to the body. Just to be able to fulfill the purpose of creation, to reveal the essence of God, to make God feel at home in this world. And how do you fulfill that? By opening your heart and opening your mind, and becoming aware of the truth of God, the reality of God. There is no other reality but God. God's absolute essence, God's absolute reality. Kabbalah and the Psychology of the Soul Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky